Thank you, Blake, for your prayers. Uh, as Blake said, we are coming to our time in the Word. We're continuing in the book of Galatians. We're in chapter 3, our series titled Centered Faith. And we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 3. I'm going to ask that you stand, if you're able, in reverence to God's holy word. We're reading Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. This is God's word. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everyone under sin. So the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we know that your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that you would allow me, your servant, to get out of the way that your truth might come and land in our hearts and that we would encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. I pray that we would all leave here different people because we've been with you. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Just this past week, I got a phone call from a lady that I've gotten 
pretty close to since I moved to Durham. And ever since I met her, she has had this propensity to cultivate relationships with abusive men. It's been painful and, and deeply saddening to witness. That's, that's an understatement. And this past week, we were once again discussing this toxic pattern. And during this discussion, my friend shared with me that she has lately been considering pursuing the same gender in hopes of somehow breaking out of this pattern. And before I could even respond, she said something that I found profoundly discouraging. She said, but I can't do that, Pastor Timothy, because I don't want to go to hell. And although this might surprise you, the thing which discouraged me had nothing to do with sexuality. But rather, I was deeply saddened by my friend's misunderstanding of the most fundamental doctrine of Christianity, of her belief that her salvation was contingent upon her performance, upon adhering to some set of guidelines, and that if she screwed up enough, she would be shunned forever. And after I hung up the phone, it got worse. I couldn't help but grieve over the countless others who call themselves Christians and are likewise confused. But then it became personal. I began to look at my own heart, and I was reminded and saddened over how often I believe the exact same lie that my friend was believing. Brothers and sisters, the harsh reality is that all of us are so conditioned to believe like my friend. That God's love is contingent upon our performance. That the only way to secure His love is by being a good enough person. And as a result, we live in constant fear. Fear that we might mess up too bad hoping that our good deeds might outweigh our bad deeds and that God will reward us with His love, His favor. It's a horrible and scary way to live, I know from personal experience. But there's hope. Our text this morning is Paul's desperate attempt to correct this wrong thinking and to bring us into right relationship with God's law, the commands of Scripture. Which is really the big question that our text has been moving toward. What is my relationship to God's law as a Christian? If I'm a child of God, how am I to relate to the commands of Scripture? And it's my hope that this morning that God will speak to us through this letter and that we might leave this place better informed as to what our relationship with the law must be as children of the King. And so as we begin to dive into our text this morning, what Paul makes clear from the very beginning is that the Galatians' fatal error is that they failed to understand the promise. And so that's where we're going to begin this morning, by looking first at what is the promise. And then secondly, the barriers to receiving the promise and then lastly, we will finally come to, in light of the promise, how do we relate to the law? So first, what is the promise? Second, the barriers to receiving the promise. 
And then finally, in light of the promise, how do we relate to the law? So let's begin. What is the promise? In order to rightly answer this question, we must first jump back a few verses to verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. What a powerful case here for knowing our whole Bible and not just the New Testament. To summarize, Paul's point here is saying, he's saying, you'll never fully understand the glory of Christ Jesus unless you first understand the promised blessings that Jesus came to deliver. That Jesus came with a purpose. And so what is this promise that Paul is talking about that Jesus came to deliver to us? Well, the promise is, is sprinkled throughout the whole Old Testament, really on every page if you know what you're looking for. But I want to go back to the specific reference that Paul is referring to here, all the way back to Genesis 17. And I'm going to put it on the screen for you because it's a little bit of a lengthy text, but I want you to follow along with me starting in verse 3. This is God with Abram, and God shows himself to Abram, and Abram falls on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's a massive promise that God is making. I assume you heard the emphasis in my reading, but the clear message here is God is saying, I will. I will, I will, I will. I will do these great things for you, Abraham, and oh yeah, for your children, and your children's children, and your children's children's children. Super bold statements. And obviously, Abraham would have had much reason to doubt whether or not they were true, especially since at this point, Abraham's in his 80s and he has zero children up until this point. So this many nations stuff is, is probably bizarre. Offspring, thanks God, but no thanks. And so in order to assuage his doubt, God meets Abraham right where he's at and he embraces a custom that would have been culturally relevant to Abraham. He enters into a covenant with him. In today's society, we have contracts, right? If we want to promise to be sure, we write a contract, and then we sue somebody if they don't uphold to the contract. But in Abraham's society, they cut covenants. And the way you cut a covenant was the two parties entering into the 
agreement would cut animals in half and separate the carcasses across from each other. And they'd make a bloody path between the two halves of the dead animals. And then the two parties would walk with the, together between the animals. And they would be declaring to one another that if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, I'm going to be cut in half like these animals. It's graphic, gory. That was how the, the contract, the covenant, the promise was secured. And so after God makes all of these outlandish promises, not just to Abraham, but to his descendants forever, he proposes to set these promises in stone through this practice of covenant. We see this recorded in Genesis 15, if you want to look there after the service. But Abraham and God, they set it up. They cut the animals in half. They create this bloody path. And Abraham is preparing to walk through with God, and then God does something that would have been unheard of. He causes Abraham to fall asleep, and then God passes between the animals by himself. Now, although this would have been unheard of, the message would have been crystal clear to Abraham. God is saying to Abraham, I will make all of these promises come true, and the fulfillment of these promises is entirely on me. It's on me. Even more bold than that, God, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, is declaring to Abraham, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, I will die for you. I'll give my life, be cut off, is what he did, right? It's what Daniel preached about two weeks ago. God died in Jesus on the cross so that these very promises might be fulfilled in us. Wow. That's crazy. That's who our God is. And I apologize for the extended history lesson, but we absolutely need that context in order to understand what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 3. So I want to read verses 13 and 14 again, now that we know the backstory. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. You see it now? The cross is not some random event that came out of nowhere. It's, no, it's the necessary work required to enable God's promises to Abraham to come to fruition, to come to us. The cross is what makes that Possible. And Paul is saying that before we can come to the law, we must be first anchored here in the promise. We have to start here. Sounds great, right? It's good news. But the problem was the Galatians had gotten confused. Although they knew the promise, they knew Galatians like the back, I mean, they knew Genesis like the back of their hand, they nonetheless had wrongfully come to believe that the law, the commandments of God, had been brought in to replace the promise, to nullify the promise. And this is the wrong thinking that Paul begins to attack here in verses 15 through 20. 
And he begins in verse 15 by giving them an analogy. And although the translation is a little confusing here, Paul is comparing the promises of God to a will. For those of you who are familiar with a will, if you have a will or you've seen a will, the whole point of the will is to solidify what happens to your stuff after you die. It's to ensure that it's going to go from me to you or you or them. And the only reason a will works is because after the owner of the will dies, it cannot be changed. The children can't go back and be like, oh, no, Dad didn't really want the money to go to Susie. He actually wanted it to go all to me. It doesn't work that way. The will is set. And when it's ratified, it's sure. And Paul is saying this is how the promises work. When they are ratified, which is what we saw in Genesis 15, they cannot be changed. The promise cannot be taken away. And to drive this point even further, Paul goes on in verse 17 to highlight God's timing and the giving of the promise and in the giving of the law. The point here is that had the law and the promise come simultaneously or even close together, it would have been very easy for God's people to get confused, right? So if God gives them the law and the promise, it would be very easy for them to think, oh, it's because of my obedience to the law that God is being so good to me. It's because I've been so faithful in obeying all of these commands that God wants to bless me. But what Paul highlights is that God gave the promise and then he waited 430 years before he gave the law so that nobody would be confused. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine there's a rich man and he adopts a young boy. And shortly after he adopts this child, he makes him the sole benefactor of all of his estate, everything that he owns. He says, you are my son now, and you will inherit everything that I've got. And then let's say some 40 years pass, and the man gets sick, and he begins to die. And he comes to his son and says, son, will you take care of me in my old age? Will you be with me for these last few years and, and make sure that I'm okay and be my company and take care of me and my illness? And the son says, I'd, I'd love to do that. He takes care of him until he dies. Now, it would be absolutely absurd if after the man died, the son went around and told everyone, yeah, the reason I inherited his estate is because I took such good care of him in his old life, in his old age. I was such a good servant to this man. I earned it. I worked really hard while he was dying. And it would be absurd because everyone would know, no, 40 years ago, That man gave you his inheritance because he loved you, because he wanted to, because he chose you to be his. That's what Paul is saying here. The promise is given to us with no strings attached. It's given 430 years earlier. There's no way that we could get confused into thinking that God's promise is tied to or contingent upon our obedience. And then lastly here, Paul anticipates the final and most subtle error that the Galatians were making, the error that most of us are probably most prone to make when it comes to our relationship to the law. And that error being the belief that maybe it's a little bit of both, right? Maybe God's love and favor and my salvation is a little bit contingent upon God's grace and a little bit contingent upon my obedience. Sure, I get that when I was saved, 
that it was by grace alone, but certainly there must be something that I must do in order to hold on to that grace. Make sure that it doesn't slip away. And Paul declares in verse 18 to clear this up. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. It's plain and simple logic here, but so hard to functionally believe and live into. The truth being, either our salvation is a gift to be received, or it's a wage to be earned. It's one or the other. It can't be both. It's either free or it's costly. And going all the way back to Galatians chapter 1, if we get this wrong, if we get this doctrine wrong, if we come to believe that God's favor and our salvation comes through law obedience, then we are believing a different gospel that is in fact no gospel at all. It's actually not good news. So important that we understand what Paul is saying here. We must stand on the promise alone And if it's true, if God really has delivered on His promise, then the truth is we are blessed. We are truly blessed. Now, I realize for some of you that what I've just said is it could be mind-blowing. You may have believed your whole life that Christianity was all about being a good person and that God's favor and blessings were contingent upon you doing just that. And for you, I hope, I hope that you hear this, this news of a promise that supersedes the law as really good news, because it's true. It's what the Bible teaches, and I hope that you can rejoice in the fact that by faith you can receive this gift, no strings attached. That's the heart of the gospel, and that's what makes Christianity so profoundly different than every other world religion. It's a a religion based on what God has done for us, not what we do for Him. But at the same time, I recognize that for many of you, this is old hat. You know these things to be true. You've heard them before. And yet to you, I would argue, and this is to me as well, that although you may know these things to be true, I fear that your experience of the joy of the promise may be lacking. Which brings us to our second point this morning, the barriers. What gets in the way of our receiving and enjoying the promise? Look with me now at verse 21. It's here where Paul finally begins to answer the question of why then the law? If it's clearly not to save us, why does it exist? So verse 21 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture, another word for the law, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Here Paul is flipping the view of the Galatians upside down. He says the law was not given to save us, but in fact to imprison us. It does the exact opposite. What in the world is he talking about? I'm going to try to 
illustrate this here for you. What is, what is the only thing that will get in the way of you enjoying a gift? What is it that hinders you from enjoying a gift? Think, think of that sweater that great-grandma gives you every year at Christmas, okay? What is it that prevents you from enjoying this gift? It's two things, really. One, you don't want it. And two, you don't need it. Yeah, you live in Florida, and she gives you a sweater. You know, it's just, it's, it's outlandish. You don't need it. You don't want it. You don't need it. The greatest barrier to the blessings that have been promised to us is our belief that we don't want them or need them. That's what gets in the way. Or said differently, the greatest hindrance to you receiving the blessing of salvation is the belief that you don't actually need to be saved. For those of you who have been walking with God for a long time, we are in grave danger of this error. I can vividly remember in college when God opened my eyes to the truth of the gospel. There was no question in my mind that I needed a Savior. I was a sinful man who was helpless apart from Christ, and He saved me. Not because I was worthy, but because He loved me in spite of my profound unworthiness. That was crystal clear to me. But some 13 years later now, I find it much easier to forget that reality. You know, I'm not doing drugs anymore. I'm, not, I'm honoring God with my body. I'm being generous with my money. I faithfully attend a local church. I mean, I work here. I'm a pretty good guy. And what happens is that I, like the Galatians, begin to be seduced by the allure of self-righteousness. But it's so subtle, isn't it? How do you know if you're falling into this trap? I want you to think about your relationship with your parents as a child, to whoever raised you. And I want you to think about what it felt like, not what you thought, but what it felt like when you failed them, when you let them down. Did you feel guilt and sadness over hurting someone who loved you so much? Or was the predominant emotion fear? Fear of how they might respond. Fear of whether they would continue to love and accept you. These are two profoundly different reactions when we screw up. The first flows out of a promise-rich relationship. That child believes that their parent has promised and has covenanted forever love to them. And that that love is not contingent upon performance. And so as a result, when that child fails his or her parents, the child is saddened for sure, but not afraid. There's no fear there of what might happen. But the child who expresses fear is living in a performance-rich relationship. That child knows if they don't get it right, that their parents just might remove their love and their favor from that the same is true for our relationship with God. The way we diagnose whether or not we are falling into this trap of self-righteousness is by examining how we feel when we screw up. If we are trapped in self-righteousness, we will do one of two things. We will either minimize or deny our sin. We're too afraid to acknowledge that it's real because the consequences are too scary. Or we will wallow in fear. 
God, are you going to leave me? God, are you going to hurt me? Make me pay? Terrified of how God might respond. Is that how you respond to your relationship with God when you screw up? Minimizing your sin, constantly living in fear. Thankfully, our text reveals the cure for this addiction. Paul says to us that the law that you are looking to for your salvation, it's actually the God-given antidote for the disease of self-righteousness. You're supposed to look to the law, but you're looking to the the law for all the wrong things. Listen to how British theologian John Stott describes how the law is to function for us as Christians. He says, and he's speaking about our text this morning, he says, after God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? Well, he had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under judgment of God, and helpless to save himself. And the law must be allowed to do its God-given duty today. One of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. It is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Isn't that beautiful? So if you're struggling with self-righteousness, if you're looking to to law obedience for your sense of security, there is hope. We must allow the law to do its God-given duty. It has to break us. It has to humble us. How does that work? Just this morning, I was meditating on something that happened to me this week. Uh, Some construction workers were working on the street in front of my house, and one of them drove their truck through my yard and tore up my grass. And so I came home after my wife informed me to confront them of what they've done, and it didn't go very well. I mean, they apologized, but that wasn't enough for me. I wanted them to pay for what they did. I wanted them to suffer a little bit. And it got a little heated, and it didn't end well, and I've kind of wrestled with the whole encounter this week. And then this morning, God brings to mind Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's the story of a man who had been forgiven this huge debt, and then he goes and harasses one of his friends for a few bucks. And this word, it rocked me this morning. It rocked me. As one who has been forgiven so much by God, who am I to not accept the apology of some guys over a little bit of grass? A little bit of grass. 
Martin Luther once said, this monster of self-righteousness, this stiff-necked beast needs a big axe. And that is the law. It is a big axe. By reading, studying, meditating, memorizing God's Word, we are wielding this big axe in our life, chipping away at the beast of self-righteousness. When you read your Bibles, is God's Word convicting you? Are you seeing in the Scriptures how you have failed to live up to His righteous standard and how desperately you need His grace? Thankfully for us, the the breaking is not the end goal, though, right? It's part of the process. Look now at verse 22. But the Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. Why? So that the promises by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law tears us down so that we can be built back up, rooted in the promise. The words of Spurgeon have forever changed me on this. He said, if your sin is small, then your Savior will be small also. But if your sin is great, then your Savior must be great too. What is the purpose of the law? It's to reveal to us that our sin is great in order to make room for our great Savior. Brings us now finally to our third and final point. So how then do we as Christians, children of God, now relate to the law in light of this glorious promise? This is what Paul's getting at in verses 23 through 29. There's this before and after at play here. Verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Before faith, the law had one purpose in our lives, judgment. It revealed how broken we really are. But, verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a garden. guardian. Excuse me, Our prison sentence has been terminated. We have been set free. We just sang about this a few minutes ago. No longer do we feel the weight of these requirements that we can't possibly live up to. The law revealed, past tense, our deficiency, but the gospel has fully satisfied that need. It's enough. The cross is enough. So now what? Do we just let the law convict us and then chunk it? Forget about it? Look at verse 27, and this is where we're going to conclude this morning. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Paul's a little bit cryptic here, but I think it's so important that we understand what he's getting at in the context of all of Scripture's baptism is about being united to Christ, becoming a part of his body, becoming a new creation. And let us not forget that this is a supernatural work. Salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about some self-help strategy. If I can believe these ideas, I'll be a better person. No, Christianity is rooted in the fact that God brings the dead to life. And He alone does that by His grace. And the fruit of that work is the second half of verse 27. We put on Christ. We get some new clothes. We begin to dress differently. Paul uses this same metaphor of putting on and putting off in Colossians. And and the idea here is that the Christian 
after this supernatural work of grace has happened, begins to live out this new identity in Christ. And this is promised as well. Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah describes this. He's, he's talking about what's going to happen when Christ comes. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. We talked about the covenant. This is the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. How do we now relate to the law? As those who have had it written on our hearts. Because of the promise, there is no more fear. And because of this supernatural work, we now have a new heart. And we now delight to obey. Not out of fear, but out of gratitude for the promised gift. Which brings us now, verse 29, full circle. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The promise is ours because we are now in the family. We are heirs to Christ's riches, and so we delight to live out our family name. I'll close with an illustration of how I think this works or maybe how it works in my life. Uh, my dad wasn't a perfect person, but he was an incredible role model in many ways. And one of those ways that he was a role model was in the way he served my mom. He loved to take care of her. She didn't demand it of him, require it, but he just loved to do it. And I watched that as a child. A couple years ago, my sister-in-law sent a text to my dad that all of us in the family got to read. And the text was thanking my dad for the way he modeled this love and service of spouse to his sons. And she was saying how grateful she was that this character trait was passed down to his children. And as I began to ponder this, I was reminded how my dad never demanded this of us. He never required that his sons do this, but he lived it out. And somewhere along the way, each of us began to believe that what he was doing was truly beautiful. And then it became to be something that we as Christ men just do. It's who we are. We delighted to live into his reputation. And I've got a long way to go on that one, but when I do care for my wife well, it feels right. Feels like I'm honoring my Father. And that's what happens to us as Christians when we stand on the promise. We recognize that we belong to Jesus, that we're a part of His family, and over time we begin to see the beauty of who He is and how He loves. And this is the way of life, the law, and it goes from being a burden, a prison, to something that we delight to do because that's who we are as Christian men and Christian women. I hope and pray that all of us would allow the law to do its God-given duty 
that it would first and foremost convict us and remind us of our need of a Savior, and then it would become a delight as we seek to honor and gratify the one who has made the promises of Abraham our very own. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I know that this subject is, is very confusing for so many. How do we relate to your law? And so many have been told or come to believe that in order for you to love us, we have to perform really well. We have to be good enough. And God, that's not what your word teaches. We're so grateful that our relationship with you is rooted in a, in a promise and not in performance. God, I pray that that would sink in today and that then from that promise we could approach your law as something that we can delight to do as your children, as your sons and daughters, as we seek to live out our family name. God, I pray that you would drive this truth deeper and deeper into our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.